as we go back into piecing things together, that's the focus I'm going to have is how can we be ensuring that the behaviour, inverted commas, that we get is seen as a need that that needs to be met. Welcome to Tiny Voice Talks with me, Tori Bono. And today's rather an exciting one because currently there is no title. I have Adele Bates on with me, behaviour and education specialist. And we have so much to talk about that we actually don't know what to title it. So, yes, welcome, Adele. Thank you so much. I feel a little bit excited that I've broken your title role and also terribly apologetic in my Britishness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it just it's brilliant the fact that there is so we've just got so many things to talk about that we don't yes. actually know how to you know pinpoint it down so for all of those that don't know who Adele Bates is who is Adele Bates? Mm. So as you said I'm a behaviour and education specialist and what that means is that I've had juice poured on my head by a pupil, I've been whacked by a skateboard, and I've taught a year seven pupil how to read their very first word. So, what I do is support school leaders, teachers, teaching assistants, and more lately, of course, homeschooling parents and carers how to support the young people with behavior needs, with SEMH, social, emotional, mental health issues, so that they can not just I'm really passionate about it's not just about getting them to learn their timetables. It's not just getting them to be able to pass a GCSE or two, but it's empowering these particular young people to become a part of positive social change. That is my thing. Um, I'm the forthcoming author of Miss I Don't Give a Shit, which is coming out in autumn this year. And I'm a TEDx speaker 2020, which, of course, means it hasn't happened yet and it's postponed. But hopefully it'll happen one day. <laughs> so, so you're quite busy then, really? It in, seems in like it, that you do. Yes, it does I, I, But I would like, I'd like <laughs> to rephrase that, though. I do only work four days a week and um, I am only on Twitter four days a week. I have a strict non-Twitter rule uh, for those of the three. So I'm, I've learnt uh, through being working in schools and through being freelance, I've learnt how to hold my boundaries when it comes to my work-life balance without going pop. And I think that's so important, especially at the moment, because I can find myself going working 24 7 mm. and then going oh my goodness why am I feeling so tired and actually I think you know it will really help if you you're sharing those sort of well-being ideas with the listeners so did you always want to get into teaching was that a sort of a thing that you as a child you thought yes this is <laughs> this is the direction so yes and no um, for those of you who were also born in the 80s and were educated in Britain you will remember those, oh my goodness, national records of achievement. They were those red plastic folders, completely unrecyclable, just hideous. Like, you know, when it's plastic, but it's faux leather. 
And they gave this. Yes. To, oh, yeah. You, they gave these to all us 15, 16 year olds. And we had to make a personal statement of our life, you know. And I put in there, and I only found this a couple of years ago, it made me howl with laughter because I wrote as a 15 year old, I want to be a singer and an actress. And I want to be a teacher. And then I put, but what I want to do first is perform so that I have some life experience to, to give back. At the age of 35, I will sort out the British education system. <laughs> uh, and, wow. Um, yeah, Great aspirations. <laughs> Goodness knows where that came from. But the good thing is I'm kind of on schedule. So I used to be an opera singer. Uh, and worked in theatre, wow. experimental theatre, uh, immersive theatre. And I, by the time this comes out, I probably will be 36. Uh, so, yeah, I'm kind of on schedule, <laughs> according to my 15-year-old in the National Record of Achievement. <laughs> That's fantastic. So let's go back to, you were an opera singer. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's- Wow, that's you know I, I haven't had anyone yet on the podcast that's just thrown that one in. It oh. I was an opera singer. That's yes. quite something. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was really fun. I I went to drama school originally, and then I came down to Brighton and I did a masters in contemporary opera and music theatre. So. I did lots of festivals and theatre work and I'd always had this classical opera sounding voice, which actually mm-hmm. as a teenager is really uncool. And I wasn't allowed to be in any of the rock bands that my friends were making because I had the wrong type of voice, <laughs> which is really, you know how those things are more important than when you're a teenager than, you know, yeah. this is the thing you can make your career out of. So I ended up being a freelance singer for around eight years and quite fantastically, I, I also earned my living by it, which is exciting. I had an immersive opera act in which I would um, sing in places where you wouldn't usually get opera. So bars, restaurants, a drag show. (laughs) And um, in these spaces, I would, so you'd just be standing there having a pint or whatever. And I would come up and warble to you in my big frock. And um, sometimes- How wonderful is that? (laughs) Love that as an idea. There There is a video somewhere on Vimeo. Adele Bates immersive opera I've left it on there because every so often people say Pooh, how does that work and I just go and watch the video <laughs> oh so, yeah. I will be watching the video oh so yeah and then also we I sang opera tunes with hip-hop lyrics which was a lot of fun as well <laughs> wow. so yeah I worked in that way for quite a few years also doing what mm-hmm. I'd probably call straight opera as it were But alongside that, I always taught performing arts. And I actually, (laughs) I set up my first drama school when I was 13 years old for kids in primary school. And I can't believe it's looking now with all the red tape. It seems a bit bonkers, but I think the 90s in Burton-on-Trent, where I'm from, maybe it was a bit more loose then. I mean... (laughs) Clearly it was because that's, I've got to say for a 13 year old to, to have the confidence and the wherewithal to actually do something like that. Mm-hmm. That's quite something. It's you know what? It is funny because when I look at 13 year olds now, I kind of go, what was I doing? But at the time, I think this was the thing I knew really early on that I wanted to go to drama school and mm. drama school at the time. Things are slightly different for some of them now. But at the time they weren't under UCAS. And so they were going to be, I think I worked it out, it was going to cost me 20, me, someone, £27,000. And I knew my parents did not have that money. Um, 
And I felt really bad. I remember thinking, oh, you know, it's not my parents' fault they don't have that money. Um, And I think that was the first time I started to know anything about class, actually, was when I was kind of like, oh, hang on, some people's parents will have that money. And, you know, not that we were um, lacking in money, but we didn't have a spare £27,000 for job school. So I knew I would have to. So me and my 13-year-old head just went, well, I'll have to earn it then. And so I'll set up a job (laughs) school. So yeah, that's that's. I tried to do a paper round, but um, I didn't get the job. <laughs> I tried. They didn't give me the job, so I set up a job at school. You again? You're the first person I've ever heard that has not got the job as a paper <laughs> to do a paper round. But you know, actually, yeah. I, I think that's great though that you set up the drama school. So jumping mm. forward again, then. So you did. So you you were not saying, and then you decided to actually go into teaching. Yes. So the interesting thing about when you work with performing arts with young people, you do tend to attract uh, the young people with behaviour needs. And that's where that kind of started. I, right. I did some work in Prue's and I just loved it. I also worked in a, for a couple of years in a special school with teenagers with profound disabilities. So I had quite a mixture of education settings. And then it got to the point where um I just wasn't enjoying the opera anymore. I mean, I'm sorry to burst anybody's opera fantasy bubble, but it's it's a it's not the nicest industry. It's very bitchy. It's very misogynistic. It's very patriarchal. It's very hierarchical. It's very traditional. It's very stuck in its time in a lot of ways. And I just found I just wasn't enjoying it. Um, I'd done a couple of operas um like straight operas and it had just been so cutthroat and all these surprise and the thing is I'm a soprano and that's really annoying because then everybody wants the main solo and bleh. and it was so kind of what's the word doggy dog catty environment yeah. and I just thought you know what I'm enjoying my teaching that I was doing like once a week somewhere I was enjoying that more than I was doing the opera and yeah. and then it got to this point there was a moment where I'd I'd done a show and on paper it looked great. I'd had audience members crying when I sang one of the songs and someone hired me to sing at their wedding and loads of people tweeted about how amazing it was. And I, to quote a chorus line for any musical theatre fans out there, (laughs) and I felt nothing. Um, I just felt nothing. I was just like, I'm a pretty girl in a pretty dressing and a pretty song, but oh my goodness, there's so much that needs doing in the world and I need to be part of that. And so that's when it, that's when I went, okay, I'll do my PGCE. Yeah. So it was interesting because I started my PGCE with 14 years of uh, teaching experience, which was, which was slightly odd. Wow. Mm. It must have been. So how, how was that? You know, did, did, did you... <laughs> it was a complete okay. culture shock. <laughs> um, I absolutely loved being in the classroom and yeah. I love being <clears throat> with the kids. Like there, there's no two ways about that. That was, that was just phenomenal phenomenal um luckily I my professional tutor Dr Steve Roberts um I'm so lucky I got him he was an ex-thespian himself Mm. and I think he knew before I did that I would find it quite a a culture shock because I'd always been self-employed I mean I'd started my first business when I was 13 I was used to being my own boss innovating problem solving and going okay if this isn't going to work then how can we get around it how can we do it you know that kind of stuff and um 
when when I was supporting kids, I, I would uh, do shows with them. I would put them in festivals and then I would arrange the media around it. So I'm a very much like a self-starter. And I got to school <laughs> and I did my uh, PG, one of my PGCU placements in a big comp. And I think I counted one day. I had 14, one, four people above me in terms of mentors, managers, assistant heads, deputy heads on a Tuesday, secondary heads, heads, like there was about 14 people above me and it was a culture shock, I must say, definitely. It must have been, it must have been hard then if you were so used to doing, well, if you've been self-employed and so used to doing what Adele's direction was, it must have been incredibly hard then to suddenly follow the direction of others. I think even more than that, I was used to putting the kids first and... right. I was shocked to realise that that's not what schools did. So I'd obviously worked in schools all that time, but I'd been very much the, uh, I mean, in one school, I went for six years, brilliant primary school. They essentially hired myself and my colleague to be Mm. the performing arts department, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is like a dream job at the the time, a dream job. So I was able to go in and kind of go, okay, who are these kids that I've got? What makes them tick? What's going to help them learn? Okay, that didn't work. Leave it. Let's try something else. You know, I was really able to sit with the kids that I'm working with, whether they were kids with behaviour needs, whether they're kids with disabilities, um, whether we're the mainstream kids who we often got year sixes who were getting stressed during SATs and then we would take them out and (laughs) let them run and scream in performing Mm. arts. But But again, I was able to be completely flexible. And I think that's the thing that upset me the most when I got into schools. I could not believe that time was being taken out of my like teacher busy timetable to go into meetings where the students weren't mentioned yeah I mean that just oh I found that so difficult so challenging and I yeah and I think schools there are so many pressures on schools that actually sometimes what happens is schools can it's getting that focus right as you said and Mm -hmm. From what I know about you, you are completely child-centred. Mm-hmm. And actually, sometimes the pressures from government and the pressures for this and the mm-hmm. pressures for that, you know, results pressures and everything else can mean that as much as we want to be child-centred, we end up becoming less yes. so. Would yes. you Would you agree with that? Totally. And I, you know, I, I realised that I was probably quite a challenge for my heads of department because I would sit mm. there when we were being given told to do this do you know four matrix this data thing do you know yes, about that there's, there's lots of similar I, ones aren't there around there, yes I, I've done many a matrix <laughs> yeah many matrix <laughs> I just remember being in a two-hour meeting and I mean I must have been I don't know whatever but I just stopped and I said I'm really sorry I I understand you're having to teach me the software and tell me what to do I'll do it it's my job but I need to know how is this helping the children and they couldn't mm. answer me and and then I have to say I didn't listen to that because I was so upset. I was so upset that this is what the system is. And I think up to that point, um, I'd I'd been able to focus so much on the kids because of the type of role and teaching I was doing. So yeah, it was it was really weird. And when you talked about flexibility, actually in your teaching, did you feel so? Uh, you know. I think everyone's got their own teaching style with, and, and we're able to 
yeah, I mean, how I teach is completely different from how you teach probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But do you think sometimes that flexibility can be curtailed somewhat within within the system? Absolutely. And I'm going to I'm going to actually hone in on behavior right now, because this is um, Mm. something that I'm really interested in, because I think when it comes to behavior, there's this myth or there's this kind of unspoken rule that there's a way to do behavior. Yes, we can all try these things, but we all know at the end of the day, these are the kind of things you need to do. And those things that are alluded to are usually high expectations, rules, um, consequences um, and punishments. And I think that also there's there's this idea that there's a person, a persona, and that persona who's usually good at behaviour usually looks like the demon headmaster. And I see this across schools in the UK that often the behaviour can be left to a certain person to do it in a certain way, whether that's one of your pastoral team, whether that's an SLT. And what I yeah. see that doing is disempowering teachers to be able to um, do behavior, do behavior, it's a weird verb, but um, approach behavior in a way that works for them. And I think that that's so important. We're all different. So just like you're saying, the way that you teach is, is going to be different to the way that I teach. Hmm. The way that you approach behavior and the way that works for yeah. you, is going to be totally different to the way it works for me. And that's okay. That's allowed. And I feel like we're not given enough space to do that. So for example, Someone asked me recently, you know, the famous don't smile before Christmas. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> and someone don't said to smile, me, don't look at them, don't be yes, their friend because yes. you, don't, you don't want to be their friend. Yes. And someone yes. said to me, what do you think of that, Adele? Do you think you should smile before Christmas? As if this oh, was like yeah. the pinnacle of education. And my answer was, it depends if you're a smiley person. Because mm. I, I'm, I've got one of those faces where anybody will talk to me in the street and my girlfriend's always saying do you know that person I'm like no it's just that I've got my resting smile face on so if I did if I I purposely tried not to smile for a term the kids would wonder what was going on and the kind of kids I work with they'd blooming well tell me in four-letter words yeah I wouldn't be Mm. being authentic and they would see through it straight away however I'm thinking of some teachers that I know that I think I only ever saw a smile on results day doesn't mean they're bad teachers. It means that they were doing it in their way. So if they forced themselves to smile in a way that doesn't fit them, that isn't right for them, again, the kids are going to wonder what's going on. Um, I remember, especially when I started working in pre's and APs, this there's an approach often in those environments that's very chummy and very like, all right, okay, let's go, uh, high five, fist, fist pump, dilla dilla dilla. I found ridiculous when I attempted to do that. <laughs> um, I've written in my book, actually, actually it's, my, uh, it's my new favourite line in my book. Um, I sound like Julie Andrews, um, if she was from the Midlands, doing an impression of Ali G. It just, <laughs> it's just not me. So there's no point me doing it. Um, but um, there's going to be ways that I've got. And I think when I'm supporting staff in schools with behaviour, I really um, make try and make space for how can we each work with the young people in a way that works for us, in a way that's sustainable for us, so that we don't start getting burnt out because we're trying to do it in somebody else's way. Um, but in a way that's natural and in a way that the kids then, ergo, respect because you've been yourself and that's what we're asking of them. Yeah, and I, I think you're abs- you're spot on because 
we cannot be someone else. And I know in mm-hmm. my throughout my career, which is you know quite lengthy now, mm-hmm. I'm sort of twenty years in. Mm-hmm. Um, I have tried to emulate the way others have dealt with behavior mm. and that hasn't worked for me. I've had to find my own way in mm. order to actually, um, yeah, in, in order to do behavior yeah. so that, and and I'm not, you know, I am quite a smiley person. I am quite a bouncy person. That is naturally me. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally like you, you know, I, I I'm not sort of what someone that, sounds if they've just taken a load of helium and is bouncing around high-fiving everyone (laughs) that's that's just not you know who I am and I'm Mm -hmm. also now no longer sort of you know in my 20s bouncing around doing that (laughs) um but I think it's really interesting and I remember as a young teacher that I was you know I I was basically told don't smile before Christmas Mm -hmm. don't be friends with them Mm -hmm. and actually I had to go against all my core values really yeah. to manage behavior in a way that didn't sit well with me. It really yes. didn't. Yes. And actually, now I I would say that my behavior management and my value system are actually very closely aligned mm. because, you know, but that's taken 20 years to get yeah. to that point. And I think it's incredibly hard if you're told, well, don't do this and don't do that. Yes. And you have to do this. And I think sometimes, sorry, I'm now off on a tangent, but sometimes I think if you're held, if you're handed a, this is what you have to do in this circumstance, follow this. Mm-hmm. Actually, that can become quite curtailing to how you are as a person, if that yeah. makes any sense. Absolutely, absolutely. And I can't help noticing there's a gender imbalance in this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's an age balance. So I'm sh- when I started teaching, I mean, I was 13. <laughs> so obviously, <laughs> obviously, I'm teaching in a very, very different way. And interestingly, it might not be the way you think. So myself, I had a singing teacher who was incredibly strict with me. Um, to Mm. the point of scared my parents (laughs) because she was so strict with me and so how was that but but equally I respected her massively and I wouldn't have done a lot of the things that I've done in my career if I hadn't Mm. had her teaching as as a base so when I started teaching who was I well I was her of course I was and I was very strict I mean I used to um my colleague who worked with me is going to laugh. Um, but I used to not allow anyone to come to dance club if they had their hair down. And if they'd forgotten their bobble, I used to send them to the um, the office and they had to use an elastic band. <laughs> and I had I, I took no prisoners, really mm. no prisoners. And to some extent, that works sometimes. I'm thinking of mm. if I take a, a group of SEMH school kids on a trip, um I took some to a local library some who had never these are secondary school pupils never been in a library before in a public library um for various reasons were triggered by various things that were going on um lots of anxiety and behavior and all sorts um so sometimes it's quite necessary to hold very strong boundaries because boundaries make us feel safe and We all know that because um, (laughs) when the boundaries went between school and home uh, in the last Mm. few months, um, you know, we felt it and we felt it negatively because the boundaries had gone. We need boundaries. We need to create those boundaries and safety at the same time. um, We need to understand that each 
child's um i think i'm taking your words from what we talked before toria but you, you said it spot on is is really perceiving each situation having their own thoughts and feelings from their angle in any given moment and that will be a result of all sorts of things they've gone through Absolutely. When we're teaching those children, there may be 30 in that classroom, but every single child in that classroom has their own thoughts, their own feelings, and has come into that classroom that day based on, you know, well, you know, they've had their own morning. And actually, we need to consider that. We really do. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that your understanding of children and their own individual needs really was impacted during your PGCE year by a significant life event for you at the age of 27. (laughs) Yes, yes. So just before I started my PGCE, I fell in love with a woman um, and I'd never done that before. So that was odd. Um, (laughs) And it was funny because it happened just as I was still working in a theatre and in opera Mm. and I hadn't really given it two, two seconds thought really because it's the theatre world, darling, and we're all uh, whatever we are, and it didn't really make any difference. And then I started the PGCE, and I suddenly had this, hang on a minute, what? And this is a really weird thing. So I I identify now as bisexual, probably I'm pansexual, um, which means, if you don't know, uh, that you can be attracted to anybody along the scale, including non-binary people, trans people. Um, But I can't explain pansexual to my dad, so I say bisexual. That's probably not a good enough (laughs) thing. I'll work on that one. But anyway, I identify as bisexual. But it's very interesting because because I have a female partner, I'm still with that same partner, engaged. Um, yay! Yay! We were supposed to get married last year, along with my TEDx talk. Anyway, um, so because I'm with a female partner, I'm the society sees me as gay, and mm-hmm. that's really weird because I've never been gay. I didn't grow up gay. I didn't have some of the angst that I hear about. My brother's also gay. And so I've heard about like the angst that he went through, obviously my partner, and she's also from an Eastern European country. So that's a whole other society's uh, experience of homophobia. Um, I didn't go through any of that. I was too busy setting up drama schools. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, so that happened just before I did my PGC. And then I was really, I was really kind of trying to work it out. And then that's when I realised, hang on a minute, I grew up at school during Section 28. And it had never occurred to me. And I think what's weird is working in the theatre world, I had LGBTQ plus friends. I felt very much connected to that community. It's weird that we say community. We're not all in touch. It's a weird phrase. But anyway, I was very much in contact with it. And so I thought I understood. But it was not until I was actually part of a minority in a way that I'd never felt before that I suddenly realised, oh, my goodness, this is different. And if you have never walked down the street holding hands with someone of the same perceived um, gender as you, mm-hmm. go and do it. Go and try and see how you might be treated differently. It's really interesting. I think it was in um, the Netherlands. Some, I think it was for Iber Hobbit Day. Um, some politicians yeah. actually did that. The Dutch, they're always ahead of us. Um, so <laughs> they, some of the um, politicians for a day walked around holding hands with each other 
to experience what it's like to be like two men walking down the street holding hands together and I will tell you it's completely different so what I find really interesting because as soon as I fell in love with my well I didn't fall in love with her first but anyway when I started going out with her my girlfriend um then lots of my friends would you know say oh how's it different that's so strange actually being in a relationship with it I always say when the doors closed to our house well it's just it feels the same as any other relationship I've had um it's as soon as we step out the door and as soon as we step out the door we become a political statement and sometimes that's fine because as my mum says I do like to bang a a drum and I do like to educate um but sometimes you just want to go to the shops (laughs) you You just want Mm. to and here's a one you just want to be on holiday and you're being stared at and people are saying things and yes I'm talking about the UK yes I'm talking about now and I think that's something I find very frustrating about particularly we're talking about LGBT history month when people go oh but you've got same-sex marriage it was only now I want to say a few months ago but obviously we're in COVID times so the time scale's gone but it was only a few months ago before COVID Mm. um my partner and I got abused spat at and physically um hit on the street in London um, and guess what? The same sex marriage um, bill didn't help us then. Nobody stepped in to help us. And there were two young women being, you know, quite loudly and verbally attacked by this drunk man. Nobody stepped in to help. And um, the Equality Act didn't help me. You know, and so when people say, oh, but you've got same sex marriage. I, it, it really, really is a very frustrating thing to hear. And going back to your point, so when I started to realise, oh gosh, I I really haven't realised that I've been in a majority. I haven't realised yeah. that I've had privilege in this way. And then I started thinking, well, hang on a minute. If I've had all this privilege in this way, what are the other minorities and experiences that I haven't lived that I am still overlooking? as an experience, as a discrimination, as being marginalised. And I'm an English-speaking white woman in England. Um, I'm educated. And I I think also my partner being Eastern European, and this all tied in with when the country was very anti-immigrant, whether it's got over that, up for debate, but anyway. So again, she was also experiencing a lot of prejudice Um, about that about being an immigrant about being an eastern european and so it just felt like my my lens started widening and then i started asking more questions and kind of going well hang on what's it like to be black in my country what's it like to be british asian in my country what's it like to be disabled in my country what's it like to be a gypsy roma traveler what's it like to and i I started asking the questions and that was Mm. when i felt like my perspective just widened and i went oh gosh there's so much work to do there's so much work to do absolutely and I think one of the reasons um you know I, I, talking to you and getting to know you is because that you know I I don't have the lived experience of you know I, I don't have your lived experience but I want to understand from you so that I can better support young people that may have that lived experience and that only by asking these questions and giving voices like yours that platform to actually be heard 
can we make a change? And that's what we need. You know, I think it's mm. absolutely horrific that you and your fiance were abused in London and that no one, no one actually did anything. Yeah. And that people will go, oh, well, you've got the Equality Act. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, mm-hmm. actually, it's about the people on the streets. And for us, it's about the children, the young people in the classrooms. Mm-hmm. Are we actually ensuring, you know, and, and as you know, I'm the diversity and equity leader in my school. Mm-hmm. Are we ensuring that we are really considering who our young people are? And, mm-hmm. I, you know, this is why... I love what you're saying because it is so important to consider their lived experience. And I know that that's impacted on your practice and and impacted on um, the, you know, the work that you've done with SCMH, which Mm -hmm. actually can be widely misunderstood and Mm -hmm. also that their needs are not necessarily considered. So Mm -hmm. do you want to talk about that a bit? Yes, definitely. So I think, Oh, there's so many ways we could go on this. I'm just going to um, carry on from that moment where we got attacked mm. in the street. So yeah. after that, so we had, I think I was going to a conference the next day and I had done a very rare thing of booking a nice hotel, right? And my partner was around at the time. So we were like, oh, we're going to go to this nice hotel. And <laughs> appropriately, please imagine what the rest of our evening was like in this lovely hotel that I had, you know, as a treat decided we were going to do we did not have a good night right we had this beautiful hotel we had nice food etc etc we spent the rest of the night scared um going over the scenario again and again and again frustrated guilty did we do the right thing did we do the wrong thing blah 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 blah, right so that essentially meant we were unable to enjoy that space that we we had hoped you know was going to be a a special evening so then we transfer that into the classroom so If a young person has gone through any form of discrimination or lack of inclusion or um, I'm going to use the word exclusion quite purposely and come back to it in a second, then do you think they're able to enter your classroom and be ready to work? Of course not. So our young people with SEMH or ADHD, so um, social, emotional, mental health issues. Um, So a lot of these young people that I work with, I'm just going to say if if this is you yourself, please keep yourself safe as I say this. Um, But imagine the worst thing a human can do to another human. That has sometimes happened to some of the kids I work with before the age of five. And guess what? It fucks you up a bit. And guess what? It's going to come out in your behaviour in the classroom. And guess what? Sometimes that's going to affect you learning a Dickens quotation or some algebra. And it's that piece that I get so upset about when Mm. I feel that our education system doesn't understand that. So doesn't understand in the same way as doesn't understand that being abused on the street is going to affect how we're able to enjoy a night at the hotel. Um, It's the same for our kids, that if we don't understand how their lived experiences that they're going through, um, whether that is to do with being a part of a minority, being part, being discriminated, whether it's about home lives, whether it's about mental health, whatever area it's about, it will affect how they can be ready to learn in your classroom. And if we don't 
account for that. It doesn't matter how much we punish them or tell them they should be learning or tell them they should be doing better or tell them the expectations are high. It won't work. It just won't work. And I, in the second chapter of my book, um, I've interviewed uh, a practitioner who was in care herself growing up. Mm -hmm. And she described it to me so well, because I have to say, this is not my lived experience. I was not a child in care. Um, And so it's very important for me out of the 10 people interviewed, I've got two people um, who were in care in my book, because it's not my lived experience. However, I have the platform to be able to invite their voices in like yourself. (laughs) But she's all about those platforms. Exactly. Exactly. But she said to me, and this if, if you are a teacher and you've never considered this, please listen. She said she remembers being in secondary school and that she remembers one particular lesson where the teacher kept saying to her, listen, you need to do. And she told me she could not hear the instructions. She could. She was there. She was trying, but she could not hear the instructions because she was flashbacking about the heinous things that had happened to her the night before in her home and so we can see why firstly that might affect her behavior and secondly why different differentiation is absolutely needed when it comes to our pupils with behavior needs they are a need they are a need and then the other piece that i was talking to um about with you earlier toria was was this challenge that we've got if you are a young person who has had behavioural difficulties during your education, whether that's with SEMH, maybe you're in care and that was affected, all those kind of things, you are more likely to be excluded. You are less likely statistically to get your exams, which means you are less likely to go to further education, which means you are less likely to get into positions of power. Oh, now I've got goosebumps. So, That means our education systems and even our care systems are being created by people who do not have lived experience of that. Most of the people who are teachers are not the people who got excluded. Mostly. Yeah. And what that means is that we have this unspoken assumption, just like I did before I was a before I came a half gay, um, before I came before I, before I what I ever I did right, it's the same assumption. I thought, oh, but I know lots of LGBTQ people and everything's okay because the rainbow, yeah. you know. Um, and I think as teachers, we and educators and school leaders, unfortunately, we can get stuck in that when it comes to pupils with behaviour needs. We, we are less likely to have been that kid. So how do we know what it's like? And we won't know unless we ask the questions, create the platforms for their voices and and find out. And I mean that. Yes, I mean that in a big way. That's why I'm writing my book. Miss, I don't give a shit. It's full of student voice. It's full of those kind of things so that we can listen and so that I can share those with you. But also on a really, really, really small scale, as in, oh, Joe, you seem a bit off today. Mm. Everything all right? before joe get your coat off you know the rule yeah it's it's that yeah and do you not think that sometimes we get lost in uh, the the busyness of life Uh, you know the an analogy that i i heard um 
it was actually with different training, but it, it links well, is the analogy of, you know, we're starting a lesson, the children come in and we're driving this truck, you know, and it's one of those trucks with the thing at the, the back, I forget mm. what we call it, you know, that opens up and, yes. that you know, we're, we're traveling and we know our route map and we're getting on and we're the children sort of jump on. Some of them actually don't bother. They just stay there. So actually they're not even part of the lesson initially because they've come yeah. in with way too much. They haven't actually got on the truck. And then we're driving that truck. And as we're driving the truck at great speed going through our lesson that, you know, we planned out meticulously, children are flying off the back because actually we're not considering the needs that they have within this lesson structure that we've got. And then suddenly we arrive at the end and we finish the end of the lesson. We, you know, we left some, if we're doing, you know, say Brighton to Worthing, we left some in Brighton. We've, we've left, a, you know, a few have remained with us and uh, are actually have hit Worthing. But mm-hmm. actually, you know, how many children are we missing because we're not doing what you've said? We're not mm-hmm. listening to those voices. And I think... I think you're absolutely right. I love that analogy. I might have to steal that. I will quote you. You can steal the analogy. <laughs> I stole it. Oh, I stole it, but it was linked to something else. But actually, it yeah. just works really, really mm-hmm. well with re- regards to actually our children's. I think it, it's about those lived experiences that they are yes. coming in with. And mm-hmm. I think it works really well because actually we need to consider them. Yeah, I am a couple of years ago I did an education research trip in Finland and that was fascinating um I've got lots of blog posts on it if you want to read about it and there's vlogs and all those kind of things but um the main thing that interested me about their education system is that every single person I spoke to whether that was a pupil a teacher a governor um a midday supervisor a counselor a citywide education doodah whatever they're called uh translated um every single person i said to i said them uh, i asked them if school has been successful um what what kind of state is a pupil in when they leave your school or you know adapted that for asking the pupils and every single one of them said they know how to make themselves happy they know how to um kind of ask or create or find ways to do what they enjoy oh and then they might have some good exam results that I found fascinating and I'm not saying that the Finnish education system is something we can adopt in the UK because we have a completely different history and our education system stemmed from that however that approach that the most important thing is that the kids' well-being and happiness is there and they know how to get it if they're not feeling that. So that was something really interesting. A lot of them said, you know, they might want to be, um, I don't know, a mechanic, but they might not have certain skills or certain experience, but school should give them the tools to be able to work that out. Yeah, um, and I yeah. I know when, when I listen to your Global Brew Ed talk, which is on YouTube, everyone, mm-hmm. um, you talked about the fact that it's safety first, learning second, mm-hmm. and the fact that actually that's what we need to consider, which I think links in to what you're saying about the Finnish system, mm-hmm. that, you know, it's it's not about the exam results. It's about ensuring that we're creating these safe spaces for our young people to learn. Absolutely. And and as I said right back in my intro, is that, I don't know, that there seems to be this feeling like that kids who are excluded, I mean, just the word excluded, I said I'd come back to that, just the word excluded. It's mm. just so, I mean, imagine if you have that stamp on you 
How is that going to make you feel about education? Oh, look, you've been excluded from it. And some of the ways that those young people are treated, some of the ways in which teenagers in general are treated, um, they are so discriminated against and stereotyped against. Um, and if we're not if we're not enabling them to feel safe first, I mean, it's just it's just useless. We just can't do anything else. And I think this idea that, oh, but they've got two GCSEs, though, which was really good, which, yes, I'm not saying that's not good. That might be really good for some of those young people. And it will give them the passport to the game that we call education, further education and workplace in the UK. It will give them that card. But also, more importantly, um, how about that we are also giving the importance towards can this young people work out person work out what to do? For example, when the rent's due and they haven't got the money for it. Or when they want to do a, I don't know, law degree and they need to get some funding. Whatever situation in life it is, can we ensure that we're giving young people a way to empower themselves? Oh, hello, Dom. Um, empower yeah, themselves. Sorry, to she's be just able seen to... something. I apologise. Oh, so. That's all right. Um, giving them the tools. A squirrel. a squirrel. Your dog's just eating a yeah. squirrel. No, she's seen a squirrel running across the fence. So now she's on she's on squirrel watch. Apologies to all the (laughs) listeners for Poppy's interruption. She's normally very good and very quiet. Oh, and no no squirrels have been harmed. (laughs) No squirrels have been harmed, but she's viewing them carefully out the window. So sorry, Adele. Carry on, my love. It's okay. Um, So just the for me, what's more important is empowering young people to be able to help themselves. And it might be at the moment of teaching, at that point, they might not be ready for whatever reason to mm. completely step into whatever it is, further education, workplace, etc. They might not be ready. Yeah. Um, but if we give them the tools, they've got them for later. And I'm thinking of a young person I worked with in mainstream who had um, allegedly been part of a case that had to go to court which meant they spent their year 11 in and out of court giving evidence. Mm. And guess what? That student was distracted from their learning. And I, I just got in so many battles with colleagues. And I was saying, look, this young person, it's not the time for them to be doing their exams. Why would it be? Why would it be? But unfortunately our education system did not, does not have the flexibility to, mm. to go for that. So instead, we shoved the students through, an, through a set of 11 exams or something ridiculous. Fa- they failed most of them. And so now on top of the negative experience of court, on top of the negative experience that happened or didn't happen, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of it. Um, but on top of those two things, that student now has on uh, another rock to carry, which is I failed at school. Now, what, what yeah. good did we actually do there? Surely delaying a year and then enabling them to really take the time and have the tools to achieve in school would have been a better trajectory um, going forward in their life. Absolutely. And I just want you, because you can put it better in your words, um, when we've talked previously, you've, you've talked about the fact that ex- you've you've said something about exclusion and mm-hmm. minority groups, and, and, and I just... It was really interesting the way you put it. I don't know if you can put it again, but <laughs> about that word exclusion, but mm-hmm. also about minority groupings. And yeah, so I'm handing yeah. over to you in the hope that okay. you can remember what you said, because it was so powerful and really resonated with me. Okay. Um, so I think what you're referring to is 
when we are thinking about minority groups, whatever they may be, we mm. are nowadays in education in the UK, I believe, uh, we are trying to include more, which is great. We're not always getting it right. Doesn't matter. Hands up. I definitely got it wrong. And I'm lucky enough to have colleagues who've told me that. Ow. But we, we move on and learn. And yet, with these young people who are excluded from mainstream education, that very word, exclusion, I just don't know how you expect someone to then have a positive attitude to learning and education if you've mm. been excluded from the group. Uh, you know, we are, we are um, human beings, are community-based creatures. We like being in groups. It makes us feel safe. It makes us, it gives us belonging. If we've been given the badge of you're exiled, you're excluded, why, would, why on earth would we have the inclination to then feel enthusiastic about going back and doing some GCSEs? It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. And as you've said, as you've said to me, that actually we nowhere else in society do we use that term mm. excluded. Yes. And where does that sit with the Equality Act? You know, you're it's a really interesting right. one. Yeah, because if I mean I'm thinking, if we said, okay, we're going to exclude LGBT kids, then you would have the Equality Act 2010 down your throat. Of yeah. course, and quite rightly. But if we say we're going to exclude kids whose behaviour doesn't match because of some of the things that have happened to them in their life that was heinous, and it happened to them by adults, most of them by the biological adults who were uh, primary caregivers. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Just doesn't make sense to me. And um, I do get angry about it. And hence why I'm so passionate about talking about these young people. Um, And and helping, I think, you know, what excites me, Toria, is the more that I train schools and, and support school leaders in mainstream schools, the more that I realise teachers really want to know about this. They they, yeah, do, they do want to help. And most, like most educators, so I'm talking about teaching assistants as well and all the support staff, they really want to help, but they just don't know how. And that makes absolute sense. I mean, can you remember how much behaviour training you got in your PGC? I got none I got none in my PGCE but Mm -hmm. I got one session when I was an NQT because Mm -hmm. I had a child that was displaying you know that that had significant behavioral needs and in those days it was me and the children and there was no teaching assistant in the classroom and mm-hmm. they thought it would be good to give me a bit of behavioral training at that point <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly and I think it's really important to think as we finally go back into a physical classroom um we are going to have young people reacting with their behavior mm. as to what's just happened now it might be the kind of kids I've been talking about who unfortunately may have been through some hideous things there may be lots of disclosures I've spoken to the safeguarding association who are really concerned about that side of it but I also want to talk to the the mainstream teacher who is perhaps thinking oh my kids are all you know they're all okay (laughs) you know um we've all been through something that we haven't in our live in in this lifetime and so guess what we're going to react to it hands up if you've felt more anxious than usual hands up if you've been more snappy hands up if you've been more grumpy you know i'm talking about okay not quite as extreme as some of the kids i'm talking about but i think what i'm saying here is that when we 
when we try to piece things back together, I just feel like I want a wraparound behaviour support for, for everyone. And yeah. I think that's going to be absolutely key. I've already started to see it very interestingly. Um, it was a parent who got in contact with me. They were very concerned about their, their child. The, the child is um, year nine. And usually, I know we're not supposed to say it, but the ones you can just trust to get on with it. You know, uh, you've got your class of 33, you know, that those people are going to be crawling up the wall if you don't get to them then. Those people are going to start chatting 20 minutes in unless you, you know, but then this is a kind of group in the middle. You kind of think they'll just get on. And the parents said to me, you know, this this child is is someone that the teachers just usually leave to get on. They are currently experiencing um, some mental health issues. Absolutely unsurprisingly. Are they experiencing mental health issues? And guess what? This is coming out in the child's behaviour. They are not engaging with the remote learning. They are not engaging with the teaching or the school. And I just think that if we aren't completely supporting our staff around behaviour and mental health and well-being, then we're going to go into a very strange world where we start to try and punish kids for having a reaction to a global pandemic. Yes. That, yeah, absolutely. that doesn't make sense to me at all. So, yes, that is something that I will be doing. Uh, I mean, I've already started because, um, of, like I said, situations like that, the parent coming to me. But um, as we go back into piecing things together, that's the focus I'm going to have is how can we be ensuring that the behaviour, inverted commas, that we get is seen as a need that that needs to be met. Yeah. And I think that that really resonates with me you know, that actually it is a need that needs to be met. Now, I could talk to you all day and I still don't know what we're going to call this podcast because actually we have covered so much. Can we have a phone in to let us know what it's called? Yeah, yeah. just put, put, put it in that, yeah. Ha- do hashtag tiny voice talks what you think we should call this podcast. Yay. That'd be great, listeners. Um, and... My question, Adele, that I always ask everyone at the end of the interviews is this. Uh, If you could have been taught by anyone, alive, dead, who would have been your perfect, perfect teacher? I am really lucky to have met her um, and been taught by her. Her name is Alexandra Pope. Aside from having a fantastic name, um, she is the co-founder of an organisation called Red School. And they are, wow, they are an organisation that are revolutionising the way that we understand menstruality and Mm -hmm. menopause. And in my mid, early to mid 20s, I had lots of menstruation problems that um, the doctors told me didn't exist. Um, And... I ended up at one of their workshops randomly in Brighton Festival, I think. And this woman, she she was able to hold me yet very firmly and and tell me that um, the way my lifestyle was, was the thing that was affecting my menstrual cycle. And she was also able to tell me the painful truth that if I carried on like that, I, I, you know, I wouldn't survive. It would affect me. It would affect my health. You know, it started in my menstrual cycle, but it would come out in other ways. And I was a very kind of driven (laughs) person. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still am, but even more so in my 20s. (laughs) And I don't believe there were many people at that stage in my life who could have shown me the value of stopping, 
shown me the value of not being productive. And this woman did it. And since then, I've worked with her for years. And um, famously, so famously in that first meeting, she said to me, if you don't learn how to stop Adele, you won't make it to 35. Those are the exact words she said to me. (laughs) Harsh but true. And then last year, when I had my 35th birthday, I did send her uh, some roses because I said to her, look, happy birthday to me. I made it to 35. But this, yeah, this woman to me, she was just one of those people who walked in at the right time. And she taught. And I think the way that she teaches, um, I really, I mean, if I could be half of how she teaches that would be amazing because yes she is strong and she is disciplined and she is wildly intelligent and compassionate and kind and understanding and patient and so I just have to be in a room with her and my whole insides just go (laughs) just yeah she is phenomenal she sounds brilliant. I, I need to. I need to look up Red School. And yes. for those listeners that um, are, are like, well, how do I find out more about what you're doing, Adele? Mm-hmm. What's what's your, your website? How can they connect with you? Mm-hmm. So my website is adelebateseducation.co.uk, mm-hmm. and over on there there's all sorts of goodies and fun i have a community um we're called the inspiring educators because i believe that's what we all go into the job to be yes, in the first place. i have a lovely community of inspiring educators over there um so you can subscribe to the e-newsletter list where you can get involved in different projects we're doing around behavior i give um resources tips interviews talks um, all sorts of things. So you can go over there and that's also the first group of people who will hear about when the book's ready to be ordered. Yay! <laughs> uh, yeah, can't wait to read it. Really, really can't. And you Thank have you. been a gem of a person to talk to. Uh, you. you know, as I say, still don't know what I'm calling this because actually there's been so many different jewels and gems. Mm. So thank, thank you, you for giving us your time and coming on Tiny Voice Talks. Thank you. It's been absolutely fun. My partner's come down the stairs twice. Is she done yet? Is she done yet? 